the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, or if not, you know, leave us a nice review on iTunes. We would certainly appreciate that. Today, Taylor and I will be taking a look at Freud's three essays on sexuality written in 1905. You know, we'll definitely throw this obviously in the Freud playlist, but may even toss this in with the anti-Oedipus material because I think there's Oedipus does have some some purchase here in this essay even though it's i think it's towards the end of the uh of the work but i don't know if we'll get to these but there's a few little threads for Deleuze that i saw as well but this was a very enjoyable read i always enjoy our freud readings and discussions though yeah you know i've said this before by the way happy new year oh yeah happy new year to you coop to the listeners we are recording january 1st 2023 We've done now, I mean, almost as many hours on Freud as on Anti-Oedipus, right? I mean, we've got, what, at least a dozen hours, I had assume, on Freud, because, what, we spent maybe five hours on Wolfman, maybe another three on Ratman, two on Narcissism, maybe another two on Repression, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 11, um, 11 tracks. And then Traber, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. 11 so, tracks, uh, twenty over 20 hours of Freud content. So we actually have more Freud content than Antiochus yeah. content. So we've delved into Freud a good bit. And, you know, I have to say straight off the bat, I've probably said this before, I'll say it again. I do think he's a good writer. Yeah. You know, I think that I've talked about this before, and it may not be exactly true, but he may not be the originator of the genre, the literary genre of the case study, like Wolfman, Ratman, whatever, but he's definitely, I think, the most famous for writing case studies because I can't think of his fragments on Dora, A Case of Hysteria is written in 1905, the year that he first publishes the three essays. And that's the one case study we haven't really looked at besides his, what, besides his case study of Little Hans, which I kind of, I kind of keep separate. So there's Dora, there's the Ratman, there's the Wolfman, there's Schraber. I mean, those three alone forge the genre of the literary genre of the case study. And we've mentioned what Guattari says about, you know, Proust's novel is like a monograph on schizoanalysis, but he also thinks that there's a danger in rigidly separating the scientific and the artistic off from one another. 
There's a kind of complicity, if you will, in the powers that be that want to see them as rigidly separated right. and non-communicating. And so he he thinks of the interpretation of dreams as this great, vast novel in the same spirit as one might think of yeah. Proust novel as a kind of interpretation of dreams or an right. interpretation of dreamlike states to a certain extent, even though that's, you know, it's got its own you know, ethereal quality. Nevertheless, today we're doing the three essays on sexuality, as Coop said, published in 1905. But Freud reworked this text. So Freud reworked this text five or six times, adding a bunch of material that wasn't originally present. And Coop touched on this a little bit, something like, you know, later in what, 20 and 24, he's adding stuff about the Oedipus complex. He's adding these stages of sexual development, blah, blah, blah. So I like to try to stick as closely to the original text as possible while thinking of some of the modifications he made. In our discussion, we probably won't pay as much attention to that, but just, you know, for listeners out there who are going into a first read, I do think it's important to consider the original text in 1905 as being in some ways more enlightening and put some extra scrutiny into the additional material. The first thing that I wanted to address, I suppose, was how this goes back to our discussion, perhaps most keenly to Zupanchich and what is sex, because I think what this whole series of these three essays do is really illustrate, I think a lot more clearly, honestly, how problematic the representation of sex is and its consequences in a way that's more definitely more approachable, I think, to grasp. Because he really walks through the mechanics of not only something like sublimation, but I guess, you know, the sort of, you know, he really works through to the problematic physiological determinism, which I think is maybe one of the areas where he's more progressive here with regard to uh, to sexuality, you know, sort of deterritorializing it, even from, you know, I don't know if I'd say that necessarily our status quo is still mired in this direct physiological determinism. Oh, yeah, it to is. Some de- to some degree, it probably, I mean, you might even say, yeah, like the status quo remains. And that's very crazy to look back and think that Freud wrote this in 1905. And here we are, you know, 115 plus years later. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to like yeah. the way that, you know, something like Nietzsche's discussion of the death of God, right? Like it takes a time to work through the, un- the unconscious. You can see that to a certain extent, there's, if we just stereotype the traditional quote-unquote traditional mindset, which is fairly reactionary, maybe not as much as Freud's time, but still a lot of those same presuppositions persist. And so Freud, I think you're right, in light of the same kind of doubling down on the biological and physiological determinisms that are considered natural, right? Whether it be, you know, there are male and female, two sexes, and they're completely non-communicating and non-influenced by one another and non-inherent to one another, that they're an exclusive disjunction, even something as simple as that, we still see persisting today in, in reactionary circles. And even ones that claim to be progressive by elaborating a, a kind of transphobia and trying to protect a feminine essence, they're kind of reproducing the same, the same types of reactionary and hard and fast presuppositions that Freud is is going to subtly undermine in this text. You know, we talked about this a bit 
before we started recording alongside this my like points i guess is to say that the unconscious doesn't know mommy daddy to a certain extent in the text freud says that eventually like any affection or love that the child receives will eventually sort of make its way to the genital zone the consequences of that to me mean that the unconscious doesn't recognize that you're my mother or father on its own like it has to be that has to be enforced socially like the idea of mother father like the unconscious doesn't know isn't aware of that the mother substitute like a nurse or whatever adopted mother surrogate mother etc like in all these other situations where it's the position it's the relation of caregiver to child that determines this like relate this like thing and not that the unconscious knows this transcendental truth of the mother and father as this predetermined yeah this predetermined path for sexuality to car sexuality is completely open i think is what this shows is what this text really brought to bear in a way that was a lot clearer for me in terms of you know gotcha. the, the sexual non-relation okay what the fuck does that mean like that's very that charge is super challenging but i think the way that freud discusses something like this like the way that any kind of affection even going into the inversion slash homosexuality with regard right. to males you know with males that you know there can be like comradely warriors in battle etc like there's a emotional intensity that they can like express homosexuality or the act of homosexual love but not necessarily identifying with that as their identity oh of course yeah i mean for freud he's not even really broaching the notion of of identity politics here. right right yeah and, but i'm just saying uh, like the even goes back to foucault a little bit it's like there are homosexual acts there are not homosexual people if that makes the quote-unquote homosexual is more of a 19th century medical invention even if there were terms before that kind of loosely describing someone with a specific same-sex object relation that kind of terminology as an identity category is more of a of a conceptual development of science but two things one thing would be the notion in say infantile sexuality or childhood sexuality that everything is related back to the genital. I just want to be clear that that's merely insofar as for Freud, the infant hasn't yet, obviously we know hasn't yet developed because it ha it's prepubescent. So it hasn't yet developed that genital zone as the sole center. And it's really that it's because the child is polymorphously perverse. And so the body itself is kind of an intercommunicating, like I say, body without organs. <laughs> That's what I was actually thinking. Because the aerogenic zones are not yet centered on the genitals, they yeah, all, it's almost like the body is there, one. There's a it's one a organ. Of, there's a series of communicating membranes. It doesn't privilege one zone over another. Whereas Even, later in puberty, when the body is more, when individu ah, individuation has progressed to that state, then the energies are more the zones of intensity or not zones of intensity, erogenous zones perhaps are more defined and the energy is directed in those places tends to be directed in those places for, for males specifically you know it's it's centered towards the genitals now freud thinks that's the same for females with the clitoris but you know there are also feminist writers and i think freud's feminine jouissance or freud's lacan's feminine jouissance too points to the fact that it's a question it's an open question whether or not women retain some of this polymorphousness that doesn't necessarily privilege any one central organ. But there are obviously analogs between the clitoris and the penis, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah. And I, I will say the other thing that you mentioned would be basically that maybe to use Lacan's terminology, if this helps at all, since you brought up Zupanchich, maybe the unconscious is aware symbolically of the role of caretakers insofar as the primary caregiver, whether it be father, mother, their substitutes, as Freud says, they might form symbolic networks that then help determine our sort of object choices. But in terms of the mother, father as global persons out in the world externally, that's merely an imaginary relation. Right. And I think yeah, that yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, I look, think that's what I was trying to get at for sure. Just to try to translate some of this into Lacanese, which I won't, <laughs> I won't do much of. I think that that would be the distinction I would make that the the unconscious is less aware or right. less less involved with the imaginary associations we make with mm -hmm. the physiognomies and faces and things of other of others and uh, but you know even Deleuze and Guattari could complicate all of that so I'll leave that aside but I do think that you're right there's something whereby we might consider the symbolic relationships in the unconscious that mommy, daddy, me constitute in the network of our first loves and our refining the lost object of the mother's breast, blah, blah, blah. This is why we suck our thumbs, just to anticipate a little bit. But yeah, in any case, you know, I kind of like what you said. Yes. And it would be not just a factor of social prohibition, as we've seen in anti-Oedipus to ward off incest, but also it would be individually learned. So it's a part of each individual psychogenesis to, to have the reinforcement of say the father jealously warding off the mother as the primary locus of the love object, yada, yada, yada. In any case, was it disputing anything you said merely just kind of modifying? Yeah, no, no, it's good. Adding some details. No, but, for sure. But You're filling in the gaps. In the text, we have three sections. I think the first two are more interesting. I agree. And, and I, I think totally that the, thir the third section is one of the more heavily edited with yeah. later material because the third section is about sort of what happens with puberty and the development afterwards. It is linked back to the other two, but I do think focusing on the first two is perhaps important. And it is interesting in a certain sense that, so we have the first section, which is on the perversions with a lot of emphasis laid on, as we mentioned, one of the topics of scientific development and conceptualization on what Freud calls inversion, what we would call same-sex coupling, uh, attraction, attraction, or yeah. or even, it's not even that simple, but we talk about it in terms of homosexuality. But again, I think that's that's a term that's probably just as loaded as inversion yeah. so it's interesting that freud starts with the perversions first mm -hmm. before tackling childhood sexuality he doesn't begin with childhood sexuality right which yeah, one might think he would yeah the, ch the, the child yeah and plus that's the structuring process of individuation too. drawing okay yes. you know the development of the <laughs> the glands and males and so he begins he, women etc he puts the perversions first, and I think one of the reasons for doing so is that this section prepares us to accept his speculations and his elaborations, his theoretical elaborations about the themes of childhood sexuality. So right. we can start with the perversions first, because 
two reasons why to start with the perversions. One is not only because for that past decade, a lot of his research had been done on neurosis, specifically hysteria. That's yeah. kind of how he learned his, his craft in France, treating hysterics through hypnosis. But then at a certain point, Freud realizes how hypnosis doesn't necessarily constitute a cure, but in fact can just afterwards replace it. So hypnosis doesn't go as far as what he begins to elaborate later as psychoanalysis or the talking cure. There's a sense in which even after he abandons hypnosis, because it doesn't actually cure, he still retains a little bit of this notion of suggestion by kind of almost like incepting ideas into the other as though that were enough to bring it into consciousness. But he also distances himself from that by this point, that hypnosis and suggestion are not enough, that there has to be essential to the talking cure and essential to working through. It's not something the analyst can do and impose upon someone else. The mastery of the afflictions and affections and complications of someone's psychical life have to come from within oneself and work through it, which is yeah. why I think Lacan's ideal for the analyst right. is just kind of kind of like a mirror. Yeah, exactly. A screen. But in any case. No, that's good. Uh, so you start with perversions because that's been his primary material. The other benefit is too, is very quickly in talking about these perversions, he's going to point out how that's already going to inform normal sexuality. Because I think that the point of the whole of the book of the three essays running through it, one of the threads is you think you're normal, but you actually are from the very beginning, even before you're born, because we're probably already doing some autoerotic shit. In yeah, the exactly. At the, I mean, we're getting know, satisfied by flows of food and shit. Amniotic the mother fluid, blood, blah, blah, yeah, blah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So like for Freud... You think you're normal and you think you're not a pervert, but no, we are all sort of polymorphously perverse yeah. from the get-go. And that's a that's a constitutive bedrock for each and every one of us. Right. To claim otherwise is wrong. One of the examples he gives, which I love, is if perversion, the way he loosely defines it, I think he, he kind of takes a lay person's way of thinking of it. And I think that's better than giving a scientific definition, which would be aseptic and indifferent but he kind of says perversions are if the normal sexual act is to take our uh to proceed towards the reproductive act with as few steps as possible without lingering along the way and not fixating on any one stage you know then that's kind of quote-unquote normal but even then you break it down that why is it if Normal sexuality is supposed to be, you know, the penis in the vagina for right. the insemination of semen for mm -hmm. the purpose of a child. Why is it that in virtually all cultures, kissing is seen as something normal? Right. Where he's like, he's like, how is that normal? Our mucous membranes of the mouth are connected to our digestive tracts. The same one that we like, shit from. That's, you know, that's not normal in the sense in which he's defining perversion. So. I'm going to exaggerate my example just to really drive the point home, but I think let's even grant you that the purpose of sex is merely reproductive. There is nothing that says or there is no nothing that is forcing 
penis entering the vagina and ejaculating inside to generate life. Let me illustrate a really wacky example. So it could be nor- considered normal if maybe a woman masturbates a man, takes the semen and injects it into herself or another woman, right? You begin to see how this idea of insemination via penis and vagina penetrative sex is not the only means by which we could reproduce ourselves, even at a very primitive level of technical development, for example, right? You could acquire, you, you need some semen, like, you know, you, you can acquire I mean, semen and like, if it can get inside the canal at the appropriate depth to generate. And at the very least with modern science, that makes surrogacy not just possible, but sometimes yeah. for, for, for a lot of people. But it, even like at a primitive even, level, even like a long, long time ago, you know, midi- medieval classical era, whatever, you know, there's plenty of opportunities or methods, technical methods to get the semen into the vagina, right? Or that could have been developed. That'd be something historically we'd have to look up whether well, or not I'm just saying, we're, like, we're a possibility no, or not. There's but, nothing but, that but determines... you can imagine, you can imagine that that technical possibility. Well, even today, IVF. IVF is just a develop, is just a more grounded and accepted methodology of this very right. process that I'm discussing, right? Like it's an advanced example that we don't need penis and vagina sex to create offspring. You can imagine a social arrangement where there is no sexual intercourse and everyone is merely masturbating to address their sexual energy. Like it could be that sexual activity is completely repressed and reproduction is held by the state or something like that, if that makes sense. That's the contingency of Brave New World, except that that everyone is basically more or less for, for Besides a very few whose very few women who whose eggs are sort of um, needed to a certain extent. I mean, all the all the individuals are are for all given purposes sterile and can't reproduce viviparously right through right. the womb. So they can have as much sex as they want, which is kind of part of the diversion that keeps them, you know, as as Huxley thinks it in line with with Freud is. Huxley even is very clear about this, like, you don't want to have any obstacles to the excitation of the sexual organs, the foreplay, the foreplay as we think of it, being completed in the end pleasure of the orgasm, are going to reproduce these psychical anomalies, they're going to create fixations, they're going to create, even the fixation on one person loving another person enough to form a family with them. Right, because there is this kind of in this experimental theoretical genre of the, the literature, there is this love in the sense in which we think about it, and the family along with it has been dissolved, right, in this theoretical world. Uh, you know, we can get back to Freud's text and even look at some some parts if you want. I just wanted to say up front, starting with the perversions, is basically saying there may differ in degree and intensity perverts in their own whether it be their fetishes or whether it be their mode of sexual objects right whether it be same-sex attraction even their modes of attaining orgasm or or whether it be their you know they're taking different objects as for sexual interests he mentions panties he mentions hair he even mentions bestiality i think for freud to a certain extent they may vary in degree and intensity and extremity and 
you know, fixation on one type of method or object than another. But in kind, we are not normal. We normies are not different from uh, from perverts. Right. Not in kind, maybe yeah. in degree, maybe right. in, in, in a certain uh, mode or method or object. But in kind, we're all constitutively perverse. And I think that that is like a good way to start, because to a certain extent, I think, you know, a Victorian sensibility in the stereotypical fashion, prudish, puritanical, might throw down the book within those first few pages. Right. It's not um, for them. I think it's interesting to, I mean, just to real quick, this is just going to add on a little bit, is that, uh, you know, just in discussing Brave New World, you made me think of the sort of, uh, what is it, Demolition Man, which is a take on the Brave New World to an extent. Um, but there's a very telling scene here. This goes to my point with regard to like the way that sex is conducted. There's no penetrative <laughs> sex in Demolition Man. Whenever Stallone goes to have sex with Sandra Bullock, they put on these like they put on those head thing, something on their head, like some type of sensor device that facilitates this intense libidinal experience. And right, she's kind of like a, kind of like a and, VR thing. or Yeah. And he's kind of and he's like he's repulsed by it. And he's like, oh, this can't we just do it the old fashioned way. And she's like, oh, penetrative sex. Like she's disgusted by the idea of penetrative sex. And he on the other side of it is just like, yeah, we just do this the old fashioned way. You know, uh, I am the law. <laughs> Anyways, I just wanted to drive that point home in the sense of the way that. Again, I mean, I think the main idea for up to now for me has been the problem, the the way that sex is problematic in terms Ooh. of representation, in terms of social relations, in terms Ooh. of all of this. Like after reading this text, that I I don't know that just fell into place on a on such a more clear way, I guess. But anyways, so demolition man is 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 about demolishing the the pussy and uh, <laughs> not 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 having access. I mean I. I, I think that um, you know Freud might call the that scenario of the let's just say quote unquote virtual reality sex cyber sex in the, in a virtual world he might think of it as a kind of of sublimation right um, yeah well I mean it's funny too that that even goes to that you know oft quoted idea from or thing about Zizek where he's like we could be having tea in my our little devices could be over here plugged into one another and then we could have a nice conversation in tea or something. Do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Also, I think Zupanchi brings this up. It's in um in What is Sex, but it's also in Isabel Millar's Psychoanalysis and AI. I think the whole point before we dive into the text that I just wanted to reiterate was I think that Freud's fairly liberal in a classical sense, progressive in the sense of not being afraid to call into question the prevailing morality of the time that would want to make a kind of exclusive disjunction from perversions and from normal life as though all perverts are either bad or reprehensible or criminal right. or or even insane in a broad sense for freud that kind of distinction can't be made alone based on the perversions now, I think for him, when we have 
the kind of mental pathologies that he's working through, whether it be neurosis, hysteria, et cetera, there's always going to be some sort of sexual component and quote unquote deviations from the norm of sexual reproduction, mm-hmm. and perhaps some sort of disturbances and perhaps versions will follow along with them. I think for Freud, it's a given if you've got a neurotic or obsessional compulsive or blah, blah, blah. If you've got one of those reasons to go see him in psychoanalysis, you're going to have sexual proclivities that might be considered perverse. I think for him, that's a given. But on the Mm -hmm. other hand, you can't read it the other way around that just because you have some perversions doesn't mean that you, for the most part, can live a quote unquote normal life. I mean, even think of the case we've talked about ad infinitum (laughs) about Schraber, right? Schraber is becoming woman, his feeling of himself becoming woman and his feeling being fucked by God and and the need to reproduce, blah, blah, blah. All of that seems insane on one level, but on the other level, he's able to manage his wealth, right? He's able to understand, and he's very well trained in the juridical apparatus of the German state to negotiate his freedom, yada, yada, yada. So I think that that's an extreme example, but a good one to show that even with that kind of what we would see as you know, we can call it delusions, we can call it insanity, we can call it madness, but to a certain extent, it's not, it's not so hard and fast, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in a certain sense, Strabo was very sane and was able to tell his story and narrate it and detail it in great, go into great detail. So I think for Freud, he, he wants to throw into doubt our conceptions about sexuality, normal sexuality, and the role of perversion in it. He also wants to call into question our everyday assumed knowledge of what is sane and what is not. The Latin root, the etymology of sane isn't about mental health. It's also all kinds of health. It relates to health in general. So I think that- Yeah, like sanitarium, for example, would- Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, sane literally means healthy. So Freud wants to call into question that as well, that our received socially informed, socially constructed, as one might say, uh, notions of of sanity and insanity and wants to, that's perhaps the main reason to write this book, because psychoanalysis is going to be the practice and working through and theory of what may be sane, what pathologies may come along the way, and perhaps how to help people to live a life that is, if not free of obviously all suffering, at least free of the suffering that comes about from the kind of complexes, the kind of compulsions, the kind of impulses that are rooted in sexual, our sexual experience. And I think Freud wants to, at least I read him charitably enough to think that Freud wants to try to find ways of working with people who may be suffering. I've always said this about Freud. I mean, for the faults he may have, for his misunderstandings, I think that to a certain extent, he's not just a scientist and not just curious. I do think that there is that side of him that is a doctor, that Mm -hmm. is a medical physician who is kind of thinking about... um, Sort of taking the Hippocratic oath to bear, or taking that to bear, you know what I mean, on their approach, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, first, do no harm. Obviously, that's an ideal, but it seems to be also second try to relieve harm where it can come from. Obviously, there's some of his theorizations, and, and this includes the Oedipus complex and yada, yada, yada. But I think at heart, in essence, beyond that, I think Freud is trying to think of ways to be able to talk about 
how we get so fucked up and some of it. And for him, there's always the sexual component that's there. One of the ways that he comes across most progressive, I've already said this a bit but just to <laughs> drive it home because I maybe, I don't know, maybe we could discuss this quote a little bit, but one of the ways that he draws this out is by discussing hermaphroditism and their how this idea of physiological determinism, I suppose, is how I'll characterize it. Maybe I should just read this little quote real quick so it kind of makes a bit Yeah, yeah, that's fine. It would have seemed consistent to transfer this conception to the psychical sphere and to understand inversion and its varieties as an expression of psychical hermaphroditism. All that was required to settle this question was that inversion should regularly be accompanied by the physical and somatic signs of hermaphroditism. The but psychical. This, but this... <laughs> I'm not even going to redo it, but this <laughs> expectation proves to be incorrect. It is impossible to demonstrate so close a connection between the hypothetical psychical hermaphroditism and the demonstrable anatomical one. So again, problematizing this link between, yeah, the physical determining sexual desires, the expression of sexual desire yeah. towards another or an object, a love object, let's say. There's also this a kind of anti-Cartesian moment here that there would be a correlation between the physical hermaphroditism and the psychical, as though inversion or, you know, psychically, sexually would be based in the body. I have a penis, therefore I am attracted to women. <laughs> yeah. The Cartesian um, something, I don't know. Anyways. And we know there are these stories in modern medical history where not just in different countries, but in the U.S. where, you know, a, a child will be born with both organs and the doctor, I suppose, with or without the consent, will kind of make decide. a choice. Right. But even there, that doesn't go on to explain what Freud's trying to say. That doesn't even there doesn't go on to explain how one psychically, sexually becomes deviates from the norm right yeah. because there's a, still this notion of deviancy and deviation i think freud wants to try to clamp down on the notion of deviancy in a juridical sense and only think of deviation in a kind of medical sense right, from, right, right. insofar as the teleology the telos of yeah, sex yeah. is is for heterosexual reproductive functions if that is taken as the goal and the norm that's the only way in which i think freud talks about deviation but i think that he wants he would want to push back on hypostatizing on sort of branding someone as a deviant or as being yeah right deviant in some sort of criminal sense again it, it seems it seems like you know it would be again a, a kind of 19th century stereotype to just to dehumanize. Right. The great thing about this, though, is that it says, okay, let's say a hermaphrodite. If someone is a hermaphrodite, then that, if you're going along this physiological determinism, they would be attracted to both sexes. And so, and if there is a connection between the psychical bisexuality and the physical, the physiology, then you would anticipate that anyone that is homosexual would also be physiologically have both sexes. Or both genitals. It's not physical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like if you were bisexual, if physiology strictly determines sexual desire and attraction in terms of its object or the other, then there would be no way to deviate from the determined process. That's really important. And I think this is also why in his 
you know, he gets this from his friend Fleece, who I believe was a botanist. I'd have to go check that again. At this period, he was thinking a lot of this these theories of sexuality with Fleece. And it's kind of interesting that Fleece is the one that influences him to think of a constitutive bisexuality on the level of humans. For every individual human, we are constitutively bisexual, not insofar as we have bisexual objects where choices where we might be attracted to one sex or the other in equal measure, but insofar as one is never wholly masculine, right? In terms of our psychical positions, mm-hmm. in terms of psychoanalytic, in the way that Freud is phrasing it, we could say it's a problematic binary that needs to be unpacked. But for Freud, psychoanalytically, psychically, we all have these character traits of femininity and masculinity, which is not about the generals, but which is about sort of, for him, activity and passivity where one man can be active in relation to pursuing, say, uh, the female loved object, but also passive in relation to the fucking boss that's given right, us orders. Right. Yeah, right? and so the, I the think masculine position is active and the feminine is passive, or at least right. assu- assumed to be, and I think those... In this terminology, which I think that it reintroduces maybe a problem like binary to be unpacked, but on the other hand, it denaturalizes male and female on yes. the biological spectrum and right. on the sociological yeah, spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a good footnote about this, which we don't have to read, but just letting the listener know that I think that for the problematic that comes up with associating masculine with activity and feminine with passivity, which has its own which has its own presuppositions, but right. I think that that allows him to say then that it makes sense that females could just as much be active and masculine yeah, yeah. That's without true. without it being yeah, yeah. without it being about their biology right right about yeah. their organs precisely right right yeah. so Good call. i think he even says later in the text which is so interesting but again it's filled with these modern presuppositions it's still a step forward but he says that the libido is masculine because Correct. for him the drives are always active their mm-hmm. aim might be passive but their activity, uh, but their activity is active. Gotcha. Because it's an interesting a, little dialectic there. It's a constant because for him, the drives are are characterized by work, by force, by yeah, pressure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's a constant activity. Whereas the aim may be passive insofar as the aim of a drive is to release pressure. Tension, yeah. Release pressure. If my goal is to release pressure by orgasming, then I could masturbate. I could have sex with a, another man. I could have sex with a woman. I could have sex with an animal. Right. I could right, have right. sex with a sex toy. It's not about the the path. It's about the destination. Ultimately. And you could have you could have a nocturnal emission. That too. Even then, though, I think for Freud, the drive is active, but the aim we could consider to be passive. And so I think that for a woman, so I think this is interesting, right, to say that all libido is masculine because. Then women having sex and wanting to reach orgasm or to, re- to reduce their sexual tension, they're also in this masculine position, whether or not they're pegging or fucking or getting fucked, whatever. Just to reiterate, there's something to gain in this by denaturalizing the biological and the sociological stereotypes and presuppositions. It reintroduces maybe a kind of cultural construction about passivity and activity. Right, which, right. But he definitely has that, a blind spot there for sure. It's, a me- it's like a metaphysical substitution for breaking down the biological and the and the physiological and sociological 
So this is why I think constitutive bisexuality is so important for Floyd, because I think he wants to say that there is no full-blown male, full-blown female without some sort of psychical character traits. We're all sort of, uh, we're all molecularly transsexual, as Deleuze and Guattari say, right? Because for them, it's about exploding even the masculine and the feminine as, as quote-unquote sexes. It's about the insects, as we talked about this with the desiring machines, etc., in any case, that helps them to, I think, blow apart the anthropomorphic representation of sex, because at a certain level, Freud is still anthropomorphizing, quote unquote, positions in our psyche and right, our activity and yeah. our ways of behaving. And you just go one further step. He's still getting the influence of the sort of symbolic of the time. I don't know if this exactly dovetails into this specifically, but I do want to bring this up. I just thought about this. I guess it does because it sort of problematizes the idea of even like the definition of like even a bisexuality relative to something like the way that bees assist in the pollination of flowers. You know what I mean? Because who is the masculine and feminine position there, right? To connect that back to my idea about how penis and vagina sex isn't the only way to, or like the only strict method in which we could reproduce as a species, right? right? You know what I mean? Is the bee the male or is it, it's acting in the male capacity? Like if you wanted to anthropomorphize, the bee would be the, the uh, what, it, what is it? The, the inform the same function that you're talking about in surrogacy. The bee would, would be neither male nor female, but the intervening uh, vessel or the intermediary. But you can kind of see how this pro even problematizes sex and gender, specifically in the guise of where we are seeing reproduction or sexual activity only having one desirable outcome, and that being offspring. Within that social context where that is sort of the law of the land, let's say, or more or less. That's definitely true, and you know, if you stick to plants… There's different ways of flourishing than merely reproducing offspring. Like we just think about the cultivation of, of cannabis, marijuana plants, whatever, right? You want to keep the, the females and the males separated, I yeah. ideally as separated as possible. Even hermaphrodites are not desirable for producing. You can have hermaphroditic plants as well. I guess I just meant that on, the, uh, on a human level, one can imagine allowing for reproduction to be rare or or for it to be you know something that isn't exclusively the norm and for human flourishing to occur in, in much the same way right yeah we could still arrive so, at the same thing but via different methodology which is not to disparage heteronormative desires or heterosexual desires obviously i think heteronormativity has its is the root of the problem. That's what needs to be problematized. And I think that's part of what Freud is doing. Precisely, is, yeah. Even by saying something as little as, like, think of the great ancient Greeks that we give, you know, all of this glory to for Western civilization, blah, 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 and the ideals and the art, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't have these hard and fast notions about, about sexuality. And in many cases, at least for you know, the aristocratic class, you know, you may have your wife, she's the head of the household, she's the head of the oikos, and you may reproduce with her, mm -hmm. right? Because Socrates had a wife, but you also participate in the love interest of, of young men until they become, and it has a lot to do with this art of sexuality, or this, this art of eros, as Foucault might say it, that 
it's about kind of mentorship and even Plato's idea of philosophy, right? Socrates links it to, to insemination, that the philosopher man inseminates philosophy into the, into the young teenage male and it grows into this, this fully flowered fruit. I mean, they, Plato appropriates the notion of sexual reproduction to, to talk about how philosophers uh, get born. In any case, that's just one example of Freud kind of saying, look, if you're going to disparage perverts, or specifically if you're going to disparage same-sex relations and same-sex acts, you kind of have to throw away a large chunk of, of history and a large chunk, and you have to cut away a large chunk of other cultures who have different ideas about sex, gender, blah, blah, blah. So I think Freud's kind of telling us like, it's only within the very narrow, limited scope of quote unquote, modern Western culture that we somehow see. I mean, um, there's a tribe, I forget the name of it, but they literally will, the younger men belate the older men and by consuming their semen, they think there's something is transmitted in the semen in terms of developmentally for the younger men. It makes just as much sense as, as Freud getting into a little bit later into the childhood theories of sexuality, right? That babies are evacuated through the, the bowels, right? As though we all had cloaca. withholding. Yeah. Withholding the, Oh, okay. Gotcha. I was going to say withholding the fecal. That has to do with sexual excitation, but, but right. One of the childhood theories of sexuality is right. That the, you know, baby, baby's born through the anus as though it were a cloaca, right? We've talked about this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand this, this thing. But anyways, I do want to mention, though, since you did bring up the Athenians, because I don't think, remember you had the movie, The 300, about the Spartans? Well, the Spartans were even, I think, like they had an even more homoerotic culture in that, you know, it was like the warrior cast. Like they obviously had sex with one another, you know? The representation of it in... uh Frank Miller's 300 is definitely one of the gayest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely homoerotic in that way. But like literally, you know, these modern masculine alpha male types take the Spartans to be this, yeah, this kind of like paragon of, oh, the strong warrior, right? This is even like canonical. The Persian soldiers were like, came up on the Greeks and the Greeks are like, they're grooming themselves, putting olive oil and like scraping it off and they're cleaning their hair and all this shit. And like, well, uh, they yeah. sort of saw that as effeminate. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to me. But again, they weren't, they weren't exclusively right. Again, this is not about identities. This yeah, is, yeah. 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 They is, had they, wives. They had, they had wives. And the other thing is you see in uh, Plato's symposium, one of the first speeches given is by Pausanias and his idea about the ideals of love is the very fact that someone like Achilles and Patroclus, they had this lover relationship too. And one of the one of the theories is, is not this ideal of love. If you're going to war with someone, aren't you going to have someone's back and fight harder for the one you love in True. war? Right. Yeah. Than anyone else. <laughs> it is a spree de corps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's also even Freud mentions, he doesn't link this to the ancients, but even he mentions one of the reasons for someone who may not typically have the object choice of another man, say for a man, would be the restricted access to a female loved object, right? Mm -hmm. So, right. Yeah, if you're in he prison. Mentions, he mentions warfare as, as a kind of typical exactly. 
phenomenon. So, but yeah, I mean, obviously today in our minds, we would think of prison priests, monks, etc. And with priests, it obviously in our history, it's become more complicated because it's not, it isn't kept just within the priesthood. Then adds a new layer of victimhood to the mix. But Jean Laplanche universalizes and generalizes this notion of seduction when he says, and Freud has this intuition too, but Laplanche really like theoretically lays it out when he says that the child isn't born with an ego, isn't born with an unconscious. And from the very first, it is receiving these messages, if you will, from the unconscious of the caretaker, usually the mother, but it could be a substitute. So we can imagine the situation that Freud gives of suckling at the mother's breast and that intake of food and nourishment is also an aspect of perverse, you know, infantile bodies. So Laplanche is thinking about Freud's, this is what Freud calls um, onlenung, this leaning that the sexual drive leans on the drive for nourishment and food at the beginning, right? In the infantile, those two drives, they're not exactly the same, but they're in contact and they're communicating. And so that intake of nourishment is not just this drive for hunger, but this drive for sexual, um, this drive that has sexual components. And it's only later that the drives diverge. So what Laplanche is trying to say is that the mother giving that there are these unconscious kind of shards that embed in the child that are these messages that can't yet be deciphered, these sexual messages that can't yet be deciphered. And it's not that the mother is, and Freud even says this, the, the mother would, would uh, recoil in horror and disgust if she thought about the, the kind of sexual pleasure that the infant is taking from her breast. Right, yeah. If she thought about that consciously. But Laplanche is kind of saying, like, this is just a natural, this is just how unconsciouses are born, we kind of contract it like a virus, if you want to think of it that way, from the unconsciouses of adults, parents around us, those who are taking care of us, those who are feeding us, those who change our diapers, those who are training us on the toilet, etc. And it's only later that we are able, well, it's only later, if you want to say it, that we both have childhood amnesia, right? We both kind of repress that. That forms primal repression in Freud's sense where we don't remember all of these sexual excitations from a child, right? Because our psychical, our plastic brains haven't yet necessarily formed the means for, let's say, storing these memories. But also I think for Freud, that's what he calls primal repression. And those, those initial kind of embedded shards in our unconscious, if you will, or in our inchoate forming chaotic unconscious begin to coalesce and structure some of the um, some of the tendencies, fixations we may have, including sucking on our on our own thumb, right? That is kind of taking a virtual object as the quote unquote actual object of the breast or the nipple. All of that is just to say, I think Freud would have learned a lot from some of the information we know today about, you, know, you brought up pederasty, I'll just bring it back to it, where we know that those abused sexually as children can tend to have a higher likelihood of reoffending. And I think that this is part of how Laplanche thinks of transmitting these unconscious sexual messages. They don't have to be direct 
obviously trauma, molestation, but there's a way in which like we get all these shards that sting us in a certain way we have to offload them, whether it be violently and and in a way that victimizes others or, or ways that characterize the sadism that Freud is talking about in early childhood, right? This drive for mastery, this drive for um, afflicting pain in a certain sense is about sort of dealing with and offloading those sort of initial stings of unconscious formation. Well, I mean, it's good that you brought up the cruelty of children in that sort of frame. I think that's really, the symbolic hasn't quite penetrated the child yet. On the other side of the coin, the child is also, they have a certain wisdom because they're not dominated by these like bullshit idealist ideas. Like they're more in touch with the real in a certain extent, like until they fully get drawn into the symbolic entirety. I can, I can, I can dig that. I can dig that way of framing it, right? Because Freud does say it's later that secondary repression, repression proper comes about through morality, through disgust, yeah, through shame. Exactly which are not inherent in the infant, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's just, that's a part of culture. That's a part of the big other. That's a part of the symbolic, as you're saying it. And so, right, we develop those ideas later. They develop within us, if you will, because they are also a part of the shards that are implanted in our developing unconscious and ego. Right. And it's later then that incorporating those social ideas and norms of shame discuss i mean we learn oedipus it's kind of the same that's, thing right that's also how internally we sort of develop a super ego as as like, yeah right freud says right it's kind of the critical agency that splits off from the ego and judges it according to these evaluative norms and instances that we inherit already from parental figures and caretakers and that's part of the shards informing our unconscious, right? That some of it splits off into the id, and that's more in touch with the drives, blah, blah, blah. But some of that also splits off into this higher critical agency that watches over us that's, you know, Kant's categorical imperative type shit, right? We talked a little bit about, I think, the just to move along with this, I guess, the approach to physiological determinism. Another aspect of this is, uh, I think, castration is another way to kind of do this. I want to discuss or I want to read this. I think this real is really good. For the sex glands do not constitute a person's sex, an observation of castrated men merely confirms what had been shown long before by removal of the ovaries, namely that it is impossible to obliterate the characteristics of the sex by removing the sex glands. It is true that castration performed at a tender age before puberty effectively tends to obliterate the characteristics of the male sex. It seems though that what is in question here is not the actual loss of the sex glands, but an inhibition connected with that loss and the development of other factors. And some of the other factors that he's he's already theorizing before it was proven is something like the chemical influence of hormones. Okay. So that's that's in his letters to Fleece in like 1896. He's already theorizing about the chemical, what we think of today as hormones from from the gonads, et cetera, right? Testosterone influencing development. So he's yeah. very right to say that obviously post-puberty castration doesn't necessarily affect the libido in a way that we might think. Right. He talks about experiments on other animals that have to do with grafting on different sexual, uh, like a female sexual organ onto a male and that changing the, the male uh, animal, et cetera. So like 
you know, he's kind of in touch with these modern cutting edge experiments that are showing the fluidity and the, uh, the non ingrained innate characteristics of sex. We talked a little bit about this with like crocodile eggs and stuff, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to draw this distinction relative to castration, like narratively through, you know, comparing, I'll bring in game of Thrones and like compare Theon as reek. Once he's been castrated, he still has his sexual desires at that point versus someone like Varys who was cut before he was achieved puberty like those are so those are two different stages of development the unsullied as well like they are also castrated which is interesting in the sense of like what this does relative or what the thesis is of the castration of these individuals yeah three very would different be figures. like relative to sexual desire and i suppose what is it not um like docile bodies right the unsullied in particular, this castration is part of it. Like it's part of a way to eliminate the a couple of things. I guess attraction, like right, like love being the death of duty. Yep. For one thing. So like someone with a family is less likely to be a good soldier because they have an investment, this emotional investment, et cetera. Right. That's the beauty of the unsullied, is they're no one in a sense. They have no identity. They are just sort of these docile bodies, I guess is the best way to describe it. That's one of the ideals for how they are raised. And then obviously Daenerys gives them another outlet that they didn't have before. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking after the liberation by Daenerys, there's an insurgency going on there. And the Sons of the Harpy are like killing unsullied soldiers like randomly. One in particular was killed as he visited a brothel. And the question was, well, what the fuck was an unsullied soldier doing in, in a brothel? Well, he would pay a prostitute to like just lie with them and hold them press them like a mother with a child right so precisely it's like super highly freudian right yeah that, that, that would be trying to uh recapture that sort of affectionate current as he right. calls it now what's interesting though too is okay going back to how he says that for the child the any kind of touching or like stimulation can be find its way to the genitals just in the mother like rubbing or touching or holding or caressing the baby that's a similar again that the caretaking and nourishment of the child is that drive is leaning on or is leaned upon by the sexual drive that's how i would put it i i think that freud perhaps overstates how the, yeah. the genitals centralize right right this. but they wouldn't necessarily be completely foreign to it either they just wouldn't have a hierarchy that he thinks, and I think we can roughly state, is is more or less dominant after puberty. But again, as I've said, there's still um, there's ways in which Freud still kind of takes the erect penis as the hierarchical model for the genital mode of organization. As right, though, right, as though that were the one, and at least yeah. for normal sexuality, that's supposed to be the the organ for discharging sexual tension. But as we know already from the perversions, that doesn't necessarily have to be the privileged organ, even for biological males, quote unquote, which we've already kind of deconstructed and unpacked. But even those with penises don't necessarily have to privilege that organ. We can, obviously he's talked about sadism, masochism. The skin itself is going to be for Freud because yeah. of the erotogenic zones, as you call them, zones of intensity, which I like, which I think is good. 
they don't privilege any one organ. And so the skin, as if you want to think of as the biggest organ, any part of the skin, you know, was going to have means of intensification. It's a network, right? The network is connected to. Yeah, I think there's just just the point. It it kind of makes sense that it could work in the way that Freud sees it, but it may not have the certain like the intensity is perhaps not as quite as determinate as he sees it. I don't know. Yeah, and the the aim is the release of tension. And I think for Freud, the easiest way for sexual activity, foreplay, for pleasure to the end pleasure, the easiest way of analogizing this, and perhaps the norm for is for ejaculation, is for jouissance coming. But on the other hand, as we've kind of shown and as we can think about, he even brings up mental activities and these other things. There, there's other ways of coming than via the the genitals, if you will, right? There's this is like sublimation. Think, well, what you're sort of gesturing Freud, towards, or Freud, what Freud would call it sublimation. I think you know Deleuze and Guattari would don't like that concept, right? For them, the sexual is immediately investing the social. That's how desiring machines work. And to talk about a libido that has to be desexualized first before investing the socius, that's where D and G want to push back against Freud and say that if you're trying to radically distinguish, say, art, civilization from from sex in this way of asepticizing the boundaries, I think for them, it's all contaminated, right? I mean, like... Yeah, um, which I think is Lacan's position as well relative to the sublimation, although he may have sort of a different, slightly different take. That's kind of how I would talk about sublimation is there's there's more ways of coming than individually through the penis. D and G say, you know, there's a there's sexuality in the way a banker know, thumbs through his deposits. Yeah, yeah, a banker bundles his deposits, a judge bangs his gavel, you can multiply the instances. And uh that's where they remain a little bit almost more true to the Freudian impulse, you know, because I mentioned this to you the other day where when he's breaking off with with a lot of his quote unquote students or his, the next generation like Jung, Adler, Ronk, et cetera, when Freud is breaking away from them, it all comes down to the role of sexuality and the neuroses, specifically childhood sexuality and the nature of the libido as sexual energy. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari are actually remain closer to that Freudian conception by saying, no, the libido does not desublimate, desexualize before entering society as though it had to like put on clothes and robe <laughs> itself in right. order to be presentable. Yeah. I think that that's where, <laughs> that's where they want to see sexuality everywhere. And I think that it's kind of in a similar, but mirrored or inverse relation to how you know, with uh, Lacan, with the Slovenian school, sexuality is this constitutive lack. So it's kind of an interesting way of thinking of sexuality as this constitutive lack that forms our, the sort of inner void of our subjectivity around which the drives circulate, blah, 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 versus sort of sexuality as the effusion of desiring machines as they're plugged into a body of thought organs that is miraculated as associates, right? So you can think of it kind of fullness or or lack, and they give their reasons for why they don't like this metaphysics of lack, but we've already kind of 
right. got 20 yeah, hours on this. I think for Freud, what's interesting about his, he brought up castration, his, his notion of castration, which he does bring up here directly in terms of, as, yeah. as you, as the quote. We should clarify physiological castration, not symbolic. Right. <laughs> but he still kind of models the cast, what he calls the castration complex as on this, I brought it up earlier, where the father kind of threatens the child with their exclusive attachment to the mother. You know, there is this sense of the organ is being threatened. And I think this is why Lacan, when he talks about castration, it's what we talked about earlier, where it is when we become old enough, if you will, to to sort of form those critical agencies that submerge us in the big other, the symbolic, when we take on, when we enter the realm of language and take it up, we enter that sort of signifying chain, blah, blah, blah. That's the the realm of castration, right? It's castration through language and not through some sort of physiological, biological, psychological threat. And I think this is why for, you know, for Deleuze and Guattari, Language has a role to play and does something interesting, but to call it castration is perhaps still to think about it in these, still to hang on to at least some remnants of the Oedipal myth and Oedipal complex, because it's, the reason why there's a castration complex is precisely because Oedipus is the model, and there is the struggle of the father and the and the child. And This is a little bit off topic, but I, I just have to say this. I've just been sitting here and I've been thinking about, I guess it's the discussion of the Greeks and love and homosexuality and version, et cetera. It just makes me think that in a sense, homosexual love, like there's a certain purity to it in a sense, meaning that, or in the way that there's no teleology of yes. reproduction, trying to like remove the baggage of this sort of Judeo-Christian symbolic, I suppose. Right. I mean, it, and seeing a- through that and saying, okay, well, like there's a logic to the love between a love between you and I would sort of be more romantic than a love between myself and my wife in a kind of way. It depends because it, it doesn't have to be merely, you know, homosexual because one can imagine relations between men and women who do not have relations yeah, that right. are reproductive. You're trying to get at, I think the essence of what you're trying to get at is that by, by decoupling sexual activity and you can call it romance, you can call it love, from the purposes for reproducing children by, and we can think of this as a consequence of sexual liberation. I'm going to leave that to one side, but right. you know, Freud kind of talks about it in other texts as nature attaches a lore of pleasure to the sexual act in order to kind of trick the let's say, mammalian animal into reproducing. The pleasure attached to the sexual act is a way of ensuring that it is performed in order to perpetuate the species. And I think that this is how he later thinks of our different loves and specifically our loves for children as a primary form of narcissism. There is this form of narcissism Sometimes in our object choice, right, where we take our ego as the model for what we want to find in another person. Obviously, he thinks that we can see this too, stereotypically, uh, you know, as the mother can be the model in other ways, right? Our primary object choices for love. But 
We can also take ourselves as the object of love and narcissism and, and look for someone like us. That also is another lure to wanting to have children because we want to have more of ourselves in the world, right? So there's a there's a way in which, you know, the mother can find a loved object in the child too, based on this narcissism. And I think that once one decouples, you know, once we, through reason or through progress, blah, 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 whatever you want to call it, once through self-awareness, we're able to, to decouple sexuality from the reproductive process and no longer make it the telos, as you said, there is something perhaps more pure about it. There is something where it can be liberating, not just in the sense of liberating sex, whatever that means, but it can be ways in which individuals can navigate and negotiate their own lives in such a way that it's not tied to the reproduction of families, the reproduction of children. Again, not to disparage that or to even think that that's ever going to necessarily go away in the near future. But we see this pushback, the reaction to this decoupling, this desuturing of sex and reproduction is still something that is opposed from conservative, traditional yeah. morality and, and normality. I think that that is again this is why i said heteronormativity is the problem to be to be put into question to be called into question and i think freud is is doing that even if the norm is something he refers to i think there's so much context to what he's giving in so many ways that he's showing how it's only due to our we could say our biological mammalian history that we would even consider that to still be something that we have to have to take as a standard or as a as a pedestal and i kind of think freud gives us at least some of the means of pushing back against sex as exclusively about about making babies i'm even thinking about this too just in the terms of how repressed homosexuality is or even just male to male you know i was thinking about this because this is a good way to illustrate it is like there's a picture of tom brady kissing his son's neck yeah, he's on his okay. lap or something like there's a lot of uproar about how this is strange. But one wonders, you know, perhaps this is a bad thing. Like if men were more comfortable or allowed. That's a social, good point. If men were socialized to be more less threatened by showing one another affection. This aggression is a I, there's problematic, I think, you know. No, I think I think that's I think that's a good point. And I also think that it tells us a lot more about the people I mean, this, who this is part of Oedipus too, right? Because it's erecting this like role of antagonism between males for competition right. a, a over over women, you know. A father who is overly affectionate to the son is that's seen as problematic because it's either feminizing or right. Or some other kind of thing. So there is a, an element of toxic masculinity behind this is what you're saying. But, uh, you know, insofar as I'm not sure of the picture you're talking about, but I can imagine it very quick, you know, easily. I think it tells us a lot more about the people reacting to the photo and projecting their own weird hangups yeah. onto him as though a father and a son should not be affectionate towards one another, as though that emotional labor, that affectionate current should only come from the mother or from right. the opposite yeah. sex of something exactly. like this. I think that that kind of idea of a separation of, of labor between the father who is the protector and the mother who is the caregiver, who is the lover, 
and the yeah. nourisher. I think we've seen in modern times, and again, traditionalists and classicalists want to push back because breaking down the barriers between fathers and mothers who are, whether the breadwinners or the caregivers or the protectors, how divorce is going to complicate that because then you have single mothers or single fathers who have to do both. And then, oh no, that might destabilize the patriarchy and the heteronormative, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of that is involved in these kind of pushbacks that we see in a pushback against deconstructing or breaking down or complicating or problematizing traditional marriage or the heterosexual norm is obviously still trying to shore itself up as though it were a victim to some sort of progress. And I just find that to be, I find it to be um, ironic given how oppressive and repressive it's been. It sees its power and its hierarchy being threatened and challenged, and it doubles down on it. That's the same you could say with like religious fundamentalisms, with the rise of postmodernism and nobody believes anymore and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's at the same time a resurgence of fundamentalist belief and a, a resurgence of how, let's just say, in the West, Christians are oppressed and all this stuff. Obviously, it's not true, but that doesn't matter, right? Because it, it's what those majoritarian groups feel. And they feel their power slipping. They feel their hierarchy being challenged. They feel the future incoming wherein they will not be in power or dominant or blah, blah, blah. This was the same shit you saw in the 80s, you know, when we were just being born with like the moral, the silent majority, the moral majority and all this shit. That's just the future is, is not bright for them. And that's why they're going to fight much, much harder. The majority, the majoritarian which isn't about numbers, right? But the standard by which deviations from the norm are, are calculated Correct, and judged, yeah. that's as they sense their demise, we can imagine it's it's just going to get worse. With all the talk of toxic masculinity, I mean, I think that this very repression of homosexual or like men giving affection to one another, even outside of just like homosexual sex or whatever but why can't men kiss each other on the mouth why can't i kiss you on the mouth as uh not even sexually but like we're close we're friends we love each other why the fuck can't we kiss each other that's an issue i think you know why can't we walk down the street holding hands yeah right exactly obviously we could kiss we could hold hands there's nothing stopping us it's the it's obviously the the way in which right the uh, symbolic we the way in which we internalize our own ideas repression, about our yeah. repression, our heterosexuality, our ways of fighting for our own repression, our own sexual repression by being yeah. homophobic. Yeah, right. I mean, in the sense in which a certain internalized homophobia could obviously be at the root of of ways of showing affection. But, you know, I tell you, I love you. And I mean that. And I think that that is at least a step forward in, quote unquote, traditional ways of I mean, I tell my, my best guy friends that, that that really matter, the the two or three that mean a lot to me. And I think that this is what uh, one could call homo homosocial relations, right? Like right. the difference between, I mean, traditionally, the notion of a homosocial relation as theorized by like Eve Sedgwick in her, uh, she had a pioneering book in the 80s called Between Men. Which the idea roughly being that intense homosocial relations 
between men can threaten to collapse into a, a homosexual relation that is warded off and thwarted through the intermediary, triangulated, if you will, through the intermediary of a woman over whom the two males perhaps struggle to Yeah, woo. that's good. Oh, that's and, good. And what's interesting, she shows this throughout literature. And of course, there are alternate examples, obviously a, a lot more now where that's not as big of an issue, but in kind of traditional classical literature, she kind of shows how this trope functions as a way of offshoring the excess, uh, let's say, emotional sexual tensions between men and gets focused and offloaded onto a woman. But it's interesting. Then she also looks at women in literature, right, that may have a homosocial relation and, and the man is... What's interesting about the female-female triangle with the man as the object intermediating is that a lot of the time the man just drops out, right? And then you collapse into a female homosexual relation. Then it can actually blossom. And I think that she kind of points out how for a whole host of reasons we could go into ad nauseum, female homosexual relations are more or less especially today, either more common or more accepted. I mean, there's even a way of sexualizing, hypersexualizing, you know, like lesbian couples and, and things like this in fantasy. So a lot of this is about this kind of fantasy space of proper ways of showing affection. And right. you're right. I mean, this gets back to your point about the Tom Brady photo with his son. The proper way of showing affection is... I mean, especially for someone in the limelight like that, like for you and me, you know, as I said, walking down the street, holding hands, we may get some glances, but it doesn't fucking matter. I mean, for someone who's known by hundreds of millions of people, you know, that kind of reinforcement of what's proper or not for how I show love to my child, that's got to take a toll on one psychical. Uh, right. Yeah, I totally agree. Outlook. So the man is supposed to be cold and like, there's supposed to be this antagonism, and through this antagonism, you become a man. Yeah, you, you I teach you to become a man, or like masculine. Or whatever. It's about being tough. It's about toughing them up. It's about, and sure, some of that is true. You know, showing love doesn't have to be coddling. Doesn't right. have to be yeah. spoiling. Exactly. Um, you know, so I think that to think that showing affection to your son as a father would be to spoil him or to effeminize him. I mean, so what? I mean, what if then? Because then the implication is you know, you're making your, your son a future homosexual and that's bad. That's the value judgment that's stored into it. And this is why it's projection. This is why it tells so much about those who are, who are judging. And I think that for someone like Freud, you know, one can imagine him as the stoic, grim, right. perhaps, perhaps even a harsh masculine figure as uber masculine. But then, you know, you see, but, I mean, that, I feel like that's more like Lacan's bag than Freud. Yeah, Freud is I, like I the grandfather. So. If you look at photos, just you know, you would assume that he's kind of this austere sort of person. But, but I think a, he had a certain grandfatherly. Not. Yeah, he. Yeah. I don't know. The more I engage with his work, the more positive I feel about Freud as a as a thinker and just person in general. I think. Yeah, and in his letters, especially in his self analysis elsewhere, he talks about his own his own homosexual tendencies. I mean, in a self-analysis, it's towards his father, which I think 
is why he he's thinking about Oedipus in this this weird way. But he has you know. a willingness to speculate and to be wrong, and to yeah. admit that he could be wrong. And it's very it's just very refreshing to yeah. encounter that humility does, and like genuine like intellectual. On the one hand, and especially in his publications, that's true. On the other hand, sadly, and we're all flawed beings, he did also have a a propensity to insist when he was right with his students. This is why I mentioned Jung yeah, and right. Adler and Rock and some of the some of the ones that broke away from his circle. Because that I think is Freud ending the near of his life, right? We're talking Freud in his late 50s and sixties, more or less in his sixties and seventies, towards the end of his life, who's trying to consolidate his legacy, trying right. to yeah to erect this new science, trying to give it validation, trying to give it orthodoxy too to a certain extent. It's that end of his life that is so complicated because, yes, I think you're right. He is um, he is willing to speculate. He's willing to go against the grain, et cetera. But he's also, you know, with some perhaps willing to uh, again, that's part of the duality is he he's so open about these things. And yet to some of his followers, I think he took let's just call it heresy in the simplest sense of deviating from what became kind of Freud's dogmatic posture. I think he took heresy a little, a little seriously and yeah. perhaps could have allowed for a little bit more experimental deviation from what he would set up as his norm. But again, he was a fucking human being too. He wasn't perfect. So we don't want to aggrandize him or idealize him, but I do think it's easy to shit on him and to, you know, it could be you could shit on him for his understandings of feminine sexuality. Uh, Definitely, yeah. For some of those stereotypes, you could shit on him for um, for Oedipus, right? As uh, as Deleuze and Guattari do, but you know, in many places in uh, anti Oedipus, they also, you know, have this desire for uncovering the Freud, say, of the three essays of sexuality that we talked about today. This exploratory discoverer who also had a revolutionary streak insofar as he is he is not going along with accepted ways of framing sexuality uh, sanity means of treating those with psychically debilitating pathologies right, right. neuroses hysteria etc he's not willing to um to think about them as being either you know, broken individuals or as being criminal or as being unsalvageable or as being needed to be stored away into an asylum. He has his merits and wrestling with his ideas, pushing back against them as well, but also giving credit and seeing where he still is fighting a fight that is with us today. I think that that's part of the reason why we keep returning to him. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. You know, people think of Freud is so retrograde. And granted, like you said, you know, we have to qualify his opinions towards women. Obviously, we even discussed in this text, right? Like, I think we problematize this notion that masculine has got to be active and feminine right. is necessarily passive, etc. That's just a, an example. There's reasons to dismiss certain of his, of his ideas, but to dismiss him entirely without working through and struggling with them. I think would be a uh, a mistake, and I think this is why I mean Lacan does the same thing. He 
he returns to Freud in a way that's productive, in a way that, too, problematizes things, modifies a lot of things, but at the same time also tries to stay true to, like, the to Freud in a way that I think Deleuze and Guattari try to do as well. I mean, even Guattari towards the end of his life is writing about never having given up practicing a kind of Freudianism, whatever that may mean, but being clear about what is to be challenged and sifted out. Don't throw Freud out with the bathwater, but sift him, right? Kind of, it's about creating our own conceptual and theoretical sieves that can allow us to retain some of the yeah the gold that's there <laughs> some of the insights yeah let that, the dirt that, let the dirt wash away and retain the gold like you're panning for gold so to speak yeah exactly and um we could talk about more but i'm i mean i am feeling that you know two hours in <laughs> and that and just the way we we kind of felt like we were wrapping up obviously we scratched the surface of the text but Talking about some of the stuff, I think. Um, no, this was good. Yeah. I really like a very, I learned a lot, even just like reimagining love and ex expression oh. among friends and males and people of the same sex. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like these are little epiphany moments that pop up. It's good to be able to make these things personal too, because sometimes, yeah. sometimes one can read theory and think about how that can maybe help us align with a certain group and obviously that's that's okay because as i've mentioned a chorus of scholarly voices but i think a lot of times it it's good to be able to reflect on how we can think about our own lives and the lives of those around us in ways that are new and can shift our perspective so that can help us to put some of the theory into practice i do want to bring this up even if it's just for our own edification would be like this just a tiny little quote from the text, experience teaches us that in cases of mental illness, no disturbance of the genital drive can be noted other than those found in healthy persons, entire races, and social classes. So this is something that just jumped out at me from, you know, just going back to our study of anti-Oedipus because of, I just feel like this races and social classes language is something that they tap into specifically with yeah. regard to the unconscious, I suppose. So the paragraph starts, for aesthetic reasons, one would like to attribute these and other severe aberrations of the genital drive to the mentally ill. However, that cannot be done. Experience teaches us that in cases of mental illness, no disturbances of the genital drive can be noted other than those found in healthy persons, races, and social classes. Thus, the sexual abuse of children is found with uncanny frequency among teachers and child attendants simply because they have the best opportunity. The mentally ill merely present such an aberration in an intensified form, or what is particularly significant, such as an aberration becomes exclusive and takes the place of normal sexual gratification. So it looks like it might just be kind of a more throwaway line that I can excise from the recording. So mine reads, well, we'll be glad on aesthetic grounds to be able to ascribe these and other severe aberrations of the sexual instinct to insanity, but that cannot be done. Experience shows that disturbances of the sexual instinct among the insane do not differ from those that occur among the healthy and in whole races or occupations. Gotcha. So, so yeah, I think it's kind of neither here nor there. No, I mean, so I think his point being, this gets back to a little bit of what I said earlier, that Freud seems to say when we have if we have someone with a mental illness like neurosis or hysteria what he's talking about we're inevitably going to find a sexual causality for it 
Right. But on the other hand, disturbances of the sexual drives, as he's calling it here, are not going to be vastly different in kind from what we find in quote unquote normal people. Whether we look at like the Greeks and their, you know, sort of idealization of adult males and young adult males or whatnot. I mean, I think that his point being that to try to make a hard and fast separation by you have these perversions and fixations and maybe fetishes and things you like and, you know, you cosplay as a a furry or as a lawyer or you have your proclivities, therefore you are insane. I think he wants, that's the last thing he wants to do. Gotcha. He's like, no, because then in a certain sense, we, we'd all be insane. I think that for Freud, right? If you're going to say that, then we all have our perversions. We all have our kinks. We all have our proclivities, right? So I think Freud's kind of saying, don't kink shame and don't deduce from a kink or a fetish or a perversion or a proclivity, a tendency to some sort of mental illness. Right. I think for Freud, that's what a lay person would do. That's what I think a normie, a, a, a sort of everyday person might have the chance to do Why, when they might want to think that any perversion would be a deviancy. Any deviancy must be prosecuted and punished. I think that's what Freud is going to say. It was kind of like saying, hey, if you want to punish someone, you might want to start with yourself because we're all constitutively perverse. And to deny that fact is, in fact, to continue the kind of repression that you're advocating for. You would repress in order to suppress or oppress those whom you deem to be uh, to be deviant. And I think that's kind of Freud's point that, like, you can't just call people who have some sexual issues, all these things that I just mentioned, you can't call them, uh, you can't say that they're insane because that is hypocrisy, right? That is hypocrisy and that is, um, it's not for him viable. That wouldn't be a, uh, I mean, there's some other stuff about partial objects that I won't go into and the body without organs. I mean, he does discuss, I'm just kind of, I guess, curious though, like these other sort of partial drives, like, I mean, the full body is invested in the social for Deleuze and Guattari, which is because like, if you think about it in terms of, and I can't recall if Freud discusses the scopic drive or if that's Lacan's innovation. Freud does discuss that. Yeah. He discusses scopophilia. Well, I'm just thinking in terms of the, the visual cortex, right? It is sexual because me seeing you or the sex object is part of the process, right? There's the oral drive of nourishment. There's the the scopic drive, which you just mentioned, the visual drive. Obviously, the acoustic drive is... The striptease. Yeah, the acoustic. Here. Dirty talking, um, mm-hmm. breathing in the ear, etc., like moaning, all of that as well. is all mobilized as part of the sexual activity. The very least, the acoustic, you could even extrapolate and say the visual would be, at the end, you know, vibrations of of internal organs, right? So all those are those drives kind of go into and are influence and are influenced by the the sexual drives, right? So I think this is for him. It's in a certain sense, because I mentioned this earlier with like the polymorphous perversity of the 
of the child, the infant, and the non-centralized organs, you know, for him, virtually any organ, external or internal, right? Skin, yeah, yeah, whatever, can produce these sexual excitations. So in a certain sense, it's not the body without organs, it's the body full of organs that are all sort of on a horizontal playing field that, that right. can all have yeah. inputs and um or they can all be mobilized as part of a sexual but on the other hand you could call them especially in the thousand plateaus reading you could call it a body without organs insofar as the body without organs is not against the organs but against organization right yeah yeah okay so against the organization of the organs and it's only with puberty onward post you know with the as he calls it the genital stage when we're supposedly able to reproduce that that the genital zone becomes the hierarchized centralized zone in Freud's theories. And I think that that's not necessarily true. I think that's just a, an ideal or a, or a norm in terms of heteronormativity. But I think from the very first with polymorphous perversity, we're supposed to think about there being a kind of chaos, if you will, a lack right. of organ, a lack of exactly. an organizing principle that would hierarchize one zone over another. Yeah, sex I, is only restricted to this organ and is detached from the rest of the whole like functioning of the body, let's say. Right. Because this is what I've often described like when I think of partial objects because you very astutely always point out it's not just part objects, they're incomplete, yes, so they're like part of an object but there's partiality towards a function. Like we said the penis is partial to urinating, it's partial to whatever it doesn't have to be used to piss or you know, urinate, you know, necessarily, right? Like all those functions could be replaced by, you know, like I'm thinking of like intestines, colostomy bag, et cetera. So on the converse of that, the mouth is is probably partial to speech, but it can also be mobilized towards sex by like fellatio, et cetera, like kissing all those things that are not necessarily the way that we think of the penis as like having a sort of singular function there's a multiplicity of possible ways to mobilize these different organs in a sexual experience or just broadly speaking in the social like you say with i really like the way that you said the described the sublimation critique of Deleuze and Guattari and that everything's already invested in the social i don't know that really hit today for me so right, i feel a yeah. little bit of a eureka there too on that one one giant penis shared by the tribe right you know, like that's <laughs> yeah. uh I think we can end. I don't want to hold you up. I do think that that your description of you were just describing breaks and flows. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's kind of what Freud begins with. This is why D&G begin with breaks and flows, the, the mother and the child, the child suckling on the, the breast, breast yeah. right? breaking the, off a flow of milk. The machine. Yeah, right. This is sticking pretty closely to, you know, one of Freud's models and how that gets taken up virtually with the child sucking his thumb contemplating yes, yes. the um, contemplating the the breast, which isn't about necessarily replacing a real object with a fake object, right? It's it's a kind of it's a simulating of the sort of refining of of the object, as Freud puts it, right? So, right. In any case, I do think that's the one thing I would say. With if you want to find body without organs in Freud. It's in polymorphous perversity, in the auto the autoerotism of the infant, right? right. Because the yeah. infant 
hasn't yet gotten to the narcissistic stage of taking his his whole body as the loved object because there is no whole body. There is no wholeness to the body of the infant. The, the infant is this disaggregated agglutination of, of zones that are vibrating and resonating together without any one organ being privileged. Yeah. And our sexual bonds are diversified, so to speak. Like in yeah. terms of our libidinal investments are not, we're not putting all of our eggs in the basket of the fowl of the penis or the right. vagina, et cetera. Right, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the ways, you know, to, to see how Freud is already kind of schizophrenizing. Right, right. Perversion, heteronormativity, et cetera, and kind of decoding it and deterritorializing it by putting perversity at the uh at the beginning it's constitutive if you will and it's not it's not something to be avoided or something that you know comes later it's a lost origin it, it's it's before any origin right it's just in the uh it's in the way in which the drives kind of come to circulate they're already polymorphous and it's not it's not necessarily something that that happens now certain perversions can take shape later on right post pubescently based on these fixations early on due to primary repression blah 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 but you know sort of in the beginning was perversion <laughs> so nice i like that all right buddy we can leave it there well i hope everyone enjoyed this week's edition of the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins as much as i did we wish you all a happy new year and Next week, we'll have Samu Tomsic and his book on libidinal economics. So we'll be on a similar, I think this is a good preparatory discussion for that text. So we'll see y'all around. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange. <laughs>